Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 1 Walden Pond on the shore of which Thoreau determined to make his hermitage, is a small lake, about a mile and a half, south of the village of Concord, surrounded by low, thickly wooded hills. Its water, which is of a greenish-blue color, is so brilliantly transparent that the bottom is visible at a depth of thirty feet, in which respect it is unrivaled by the other ponds of the neighborhood, except by White Pond, which lies some two miles westward on the other side of the Concord River. Walden had doubtless in primitive ages been frequented by the Indians, as was testified by arrowheads discoverable on its shores, and by dim traces of a narrow shelf-like path worn by the feet of aboriginal hunters which ran round the steeply sloping bank. In the early days of the Massachusetts colony, the dense woods, which even in Thoreau's memory completely surrounded the pond, had been the haunt of fugitives and outlaws. But at a later period, the road from Concord to Lincoln, which skirts the east shore of Walden, had been dotted by the cottages and gardens of a small hamlet, and had resounded, as Thoreau tells us, with the laugh and gossip of inhabitants. Drink had been the ruin of these former settlers, and the hardy water-drinker who now came to make his home in Walden Woods took care to choose a new and unpolluted spot for his dwelling. The ground chosen by Thoreau for the building of his hut was on a woodlot belonging to Emerson, a sloping bank at the outskirts of the forest on the north shore of the pond and some thirty or forty yards from the water edge. No house could be seen from this point, the horizon being bounded by the woods on the opposite shore half a mile distant and although the village was within easy reach, and the newly constructed railway was visible on one hand and the woodland road on the other, there was no neighbor within a mile, and the solitude was usually as complete as the strictest anchorite could have desired. This position exactly suited Thoreau's requirements, 
since he could either pursue his meditations undisturbed, or, if the mood took him, pay a visit to his friends in the village, from whose society he had no intention of permanently banishing himself. So one morning, towards the end of March 1845, when the approach of spring was already heralded by the voice of songbirds and the thawing of the ice on Walden, the Bachelor of Nature addressed himself to the pleasurable task of squatting on the selected spot. Having borrowed the favorite axe of his friend Alcott, who warned him that it was the apple of his eye, he began to cut down pine trees and hew the timber into shape for the frame of his hut, working leisurely each day so as to get the full enjoyment of his occupation and returning betimes to the village to sleep. After two or three weeks spent in this labor, when the house was framed and ready for raising, he dug his cellar in the sand of the sloping bank, six feet square by seven deep, and having bought the planks of a shanty belonging to an Irishman who worked on the Fitchburg Railroad, he transported them to the site of the hut. Early in May he set up the frame of his house, on which occasion, for the sake of neighborliness, as he is careful to tell us, rather than of necessity, he accepted the assistance of some of his friends, among whom were Alcott, to whom he returned the axe sharper than he had received it, George William Curtis, who was then spending a year or two at Concord, having hired himself out as an agricultural laborer, and Edmund Hosmer, one of the leading farmers of Concord, with whom Thoreau was on intimate terms. Footnote. In his contribution to Homes of American Authors, he refers to Thoreau's hut. One pleasant afternoon a small party of us helped him raise it, a bit of life as Arcadian as any at Brook Farm. End footnote. The hut, which was ten feet wide by fifteen long, with a garret and a closet, a large window at the side, a door at one end, and a brick fireplace at the other, was then boarded and roofed so as to be quite rainproof, but during the summer months it remained without plastering or chimney. It was the 4th of July, or Independence Day, a significant and auspicious date for the commencement of such an undertaking, when Thoreau, who previously had been owner of no habitations but a boat and a tent, took up his residence in this house which he could call his own property, and which, as he proudly records, had cost him but twenty-eight dollars in the building. The question of furnishing, which is a cause of such anxious consideration to so many worthy householders, was solved by Thoreau with his usual boldness and expedition. Furniture, he exclaims, in an outburst of pitying wonder at the spectacle of men who are enslaved by their own chattels. Thank God I can sit and I can stand without the aid of a furniture warehouse. His furniture at Walden, which was partly of his own manufacture, 
consisted of a bed, a table, a desk, three chairs, a looking-glass three inches in diameter, a pair of tongs and andirons, a kettle, a skillet, and a frying-pan, a dipper, a wash-bowl, two forks and knives, three plates, one cup, one spoon, a jug for oil, a jug for molasses, and a japanned lamp. Curtains he did not need, since there were no gazers to look in on him except the sun and moon, and he had no carpet in danger of fading, nor meat and milk to be guarded from sunshine or moonbeam. When a lady offered him a mat, he declined it as being too cumbrous and troublesome an article. He preferred to wipe his feet on the sod outside his door. Finding that three pieces of limestone which lay upon his desk required to be dusted daily, he threw them out of the window, determined that if he had any furniture to dust, it should be the furniture of his mind. With a house thus organized, housework, instead of being an exhausting and ever-recurring labor, was a pleasant pastime. When my floor was dirty, I rose early, and setting all my furniture out of doors on the grass, bed and bedstead making but one budget, dashed water on the floor, and sprinkled white sand from the pond on it, and then with a broom scrubbed it clean and white, and by the time the villagers had broken their fast, the morning sun had dried my house sufficiently to allow me to move in again, and my meditations were almost uninterrupted. It was pleasant to see my whole household effects on the grass, making a little pile like a gypsy's pack, and my three-legged table, from which I did not remove the books and pen and ink, standing amidst the pines and hickories. Having thus chosen his surroundings, he was free to choose also the most congenial manner of life. He rose early and took his bath in the pond, a habit which he regarded as nothing less than a religious exercise. After the morning bath came the work, or the leisure of the day. In the early summer, before the building was finished, he had ploughed and planted about two and a half acres of the light sandy soil in the neighborhood of his hut, the crop chiefly consisting of beans, with a few potatoes, peas, and turnips. And during this first summer at Walden, the bean field was the chief scene of his labors, from five o'clock till noon being the hours devoted to the work. Day after day, the travelers on the road from Concord to Lincoln would rein in their horses and pause to look with wonder on this strange husbandman, who cultivated a field where all else was wild upland, who put no manure on the soil, and continued to sow beans at a time when others had begun to hoe. Meantime, the husbandman himself was deriving from his rough matter-of-fact occupation a sort of sublime transcendental satisfaction. It was agriculture and mysticism combined to which he was devoting his bodily and mental energies. 
what matter if when the pecuniary gains and losses of the season came to be estimated he found himself with a balance of but eight dollars in his favor which represented his year's income from the farm was he not less anxious and more contented than his fellow agriculturists of the village the following season he improved on these results by cultivating only a third of an acre and using the spade instead of the plough whatever money was further needed for his food and personal expenses he earned by occasional day labor in the land for he had as he tells us as many trades as fingers after a morning thus spent in work whether manual or literary he would refresh himself by a second plunge in the pond and enjoy an afternoon of perfect freedom rambling according to his wont by river or forest wherever his inclination led him he had also his entire days of leisure when he could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work whether of the head or hands sometimes he says in a summer morning having taken my accustomed bath i sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs in undisturbed solitude and stillness while the birds sang around or flitted noiseless through the house until by the sun falling in at my west window or the noise of some traveller's wagon on the distant highway i was reminded of the lapse of time he was well aware that these daydreams must be accounted sheer idleness by his enterprising townsmen but of that he himself was the best and only judge on moonlit evenings he would walk on the sandy beach of the pond and wake the echoes of the surrounding woods with his flute we have seen what amount of shelter thoreau thought needful for his comfort his estimate of what is necessary in the way of food and clothing was conceived in the same spirit his costume was habitually coarse shabby and serviceable he would wear corduroy channing tells us but not shoddy his drab hat battered and weather-stained his clothes often torn and as often mended, his dusty cowhide boots all told of hard service in field and forest and of the unwillingness of the wearer to waste a single dollar on the vanities of outward appearance. He wished his garments to become assimilated to himself and to receive a true impress of his character. He would not be like some king or nobleman a wooden horse on which clean clothes might be hung for a day's ornament his diet was fully as simple and economical as his clothing his food while he stayed at walden consisted of rice indian meal potatoes and very rarely salt pork and his drink was water he baked his own bread of rye and indian meal at first procuring yeast from the village but afterwards
coming to the conclusion that it was simpler and more respectable to omit the process of leavening. He had a strong preference at all times for a vegetarian diet, though he would occasionally catch a mess of fish for his dinner from Walden Pond, and pleads guilty on one occasion to having slaughtered and devoured a woodchuck which made inroads on his beanfield. Here is an anecdote of Thoreau by one who visited him at Walden. One of the axioms of his philosophy had been to take the life of nothing that breathed, if he could avoid it. But it had now become a serious question with him whether to allow the woodchucks and rabbits to destroy his beans or to fight. Having determined on the latter, he procured a steel trap and soon caught a venerable old fellow to the manor born, and who had held undisputed possession there for all time. After retaining the enemy of all beans in Durance Ville for a few hours, he pressed his foot on the spring of the trap and let him go, expecting and hoping never to see him again. Vain delusion. A few days later, on returning from the village post office and looking in the direction of his bean field, to his disgust and apprehension, he saw the same old gray back disappear behind some brush just outside the field. Accordingly, he set the trap and again caught the thief. Now it so happened that those old knights of the shotgun, Hook and Line, Wesson, Pratt and Company, were on a piscatorial visit to the pond. A council of war was thereupon held to determine what should be done with the woodchuck. A decision was rendered immediately by the landlord of the Middlesex Hotel in his terse and laconic manner. Knock his brains out! This, however, was altogether too severe on the woodchuck, thought Henry. Even woodchucks had some rights that squatter sovereigns should respect. Was he not the original occupant there? And had not he jumped the woodchuck's claim, destroyed his home, and built the hut upon the ruins? After considering the question carefully, he took the woodchuck in his arms and carried him some two miles away, and then, with a severe admonition at the end of a good stick, he opened the trap and again let him depart in peace and he never saw him more. Footnote. Some Recollections and Incidents Concerning Thoreau by Joseph Hosmer. End footnote. In November, when the summer weather was ended and frost coming on apace, he put the finishing touches to his house by shingling its sides, building a fireplace and chimney, and finally plastering the walls. Hardly was this last process over when the winter set in with full severity, and by the middle of December the pond was completely frozen and the ground covered with snow. He now began, in the full sense, to inhabit his hermitage, his outdoor employments being limited to collecting and chopping firewood, while during the long evening hours he occupied himself with the journal 
which he still kept with unfailing regularity, and which formed the basis of his Walden, and the week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, the latter of which was now in course of preparation. Now, too, he had full leisure to weigh the respective merits of society and solitude. Of the solitude thus offered him, he availed himself with gratitude and profit. It was during this period that he matured his thoughts and perfected his literary style, so that having come to Walden with still somewhat of the crudeness of youth, he might leave it with the firmness and dignity of manhood. In this connection may be quoted the pleasant stanzas of the winter walk, written at Walden, though at a somewhat earlier date. When winter fringes every bough with his fantastic wreath, and puts the seal of silence now upon the leaves beneath. When every stream in its pent house goes gurgling on its way, and in his gallery the mouse nibbleth the meadow hay. Methinks the summer still is nigh, and lurketh underneath, as that same meadow mouse doth he snug in that last year's heath. Eager I hasten to the vale, as if I heard brave news, how nature held high festival, which it were hard to lose. I gamble with my neighbor ice, and sympathizing quake, as each new crack darts in a trice across the gladsome lake. One with the cricket in the ground, and faggot on the hearth, resounds the rare domestic sound along the forest path. End of chapter 4, part 1 Chapter 4, part 2 of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, part 2 it is, however, a mistake to suppose that Thoreau was entirely isolated from society during his seclusion at Walden. Such had never been his intention, and such was not, in fact, the case. Every day or two, in winter as well as in summer, he strolled to the village to see his relatives and friends, and to hear the gossip of the hour, sometimes returning late at night after supper at a friend's house, and steering his way with difficulty through the darkness of the Walden Woods. The Fitchburg Railroad often provided him with a pathway on these occasions. Indeed, so well known was he along the line that the drivers of the trains were accustomed to bow to him as to an old acquaintance. Nor was the visiting altogether on Thoreau's side, for, as may well be believed, the news of his strange retirement brought him numerous unbidden guests, whom he received with such hospitality as was possible in his sylvan abode. To the simple holiday folk, who came to enjoy themselves and make the best of their time, 
such as children and railroad men, woodchoppers, fishermen, hunters, and even idiots from the almshouse, he seems invariably to have extended a hearty welcome and good fellowship. Not so, perhaps, to the dilettante reformers, prying gossips, and sham philanthropists, whose advances he characteristically resented, men who did not know when their visit had terminated, though he sought to indicate this fact to them by going about his business again and answering them from greater and greater remoteness. He also received welcome visits from Emerson, on whose land he was squatting, and from his other personal friends. Ellery Channing spent a fortnight with him in his hut at Walden, at the time when he was building his fireplace, and was a frequent visitor at all seasons of the year. Alcott was another of his regular guests, and it is he who is referred to in the pages of Walden as one of the last of the philosophers, the man of the most faith of any alive. On a Sunday afternoon he would sometimes be cheered by the approach of the long-headed farmer, Edmund Hosmer, one of the firmest and hardiest of his friends, and the talk would then be of rude and simple times when men sat about large fires in cold bracing weather with clear heads. The following is a record of a visit paid to Thoreau by Joseph Hosmer, the son of his farmer friend. Early in September, 1845, on his invitation, I spent a Sunday at his lakeside retreat. His hospitality and manner of entertainment were unique and peculiar to the time and place. The cooking apparatus was primitive and consisted of a hole made in the earth and inlaid with stones upon which the fire was made after the manner at the seashore when they have a clambake. When sufficiently hot, remove the embers and place on the fish, frog, etc., our bill of fare included horned pout, corn, bread, beans, salt, etc. The beans had been previously cooked. The meal for our bread was mixed with lake water only, and when prepared it was spread upon the surface of a thin stone used for that purpose and baked. When the bread had been sufficiently baked, the stone was removed, then the fish was placed over the hot stones and roasted, some in wet paper and some without, and when seasoned with salt, they were delicious. It will be seen from these instances that Thoreau was by no means the misanthropic anchorite that some have imagined him. He well knew the value of social intercourse, but, on the other hand, he knew also that society is commonly too cheap. He loved at times to be alone, and confesses that he never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. It has been supposed that the Walden Hermitage was occasionally a refuge to quite other visitors than those who have been enumerated, 
and that the Rose Hut was a station in the great underground railway for runaway slaves, though Thoreau himself only mentions one visitor of this kind, whom he had helped to forward toward the North Star. I am informed, however, on good authority, that of Colonel Wentworth Higginson, that Thoreau's hut can have had little, if anything, to do with the Underground Railway. Massachusetts did not, like Ohio, lie in the shortest line between the slave states and Canada. Hence, fewer fugitives passed through, and those who did were less hotly pursued, so that the Underground Railway, which was a pretty definite chain of houses in Ohio, was rather a vague figure of speech hereabouts. In one or two cases, fugitives were expressly taken to Concord, and may have been in Thoreau's hut, but it must have been quite exceptional. I have made this a matter of special investigation, says Dr. S. A. Jones, and the truth is that there were specially prepared houses in old Concord which afforded infinitely more secure resting and hiding places for the fugitive slave. Footnote. Lippincott's Magazine, August 1891. In the first edition of this book, I was in error on this point. End footnote. Moreover, the survivors who managed Concord Station declare that the Rose Hut was not used for such a purpose. It was in connection with Thoreau's abolitionist enthusiasm that a remarkable incident befell him during his first autumn at Walden. His individualistic view of life had naturally led him, as it led Alcott and some other transcendentalists, to the adoption of anarchist doctrines, and he heartily accepted and endorsed the dictum that that government is best which governs not at all. His deep disapproval of the foreign policy of the United States in their war with Mexico, and his still stronger detestation of the sanction given by government to Negro slavery at home, had the effect of spurring his latent discontent into a sense of active personal antagonism to the state and its representatives, and he felt that something more than a verbal protest was demanded from those who, like himself, were required to show their allegiance in the form of taxes. I meet this American government, or its representative, the state government, directly, and face to face once a year, no more, in the person of its tax-gatherer. If a thousand men were not to pay their tax-bills this year, that would not be a violent and bloody measure, as it would be to pay them, and enable the state to commit violence and shed innocent blood. Footnote. Essay on Civil Disobedience, 1849. And footnote. So, when his civil neighbor, the tax-gatherer, came to Thoreau for the poll-tax, it was refused, as the church-tax had been refused by him in 1838, 
on the ground that he did not care to trace the course of his dollar till it buys a man or a musket to shoot one with. To the anxious inquiry of the tax-gatherer what he was to do under these perplexing circumstances, the answer returned was that if he really wished to do anything, he should resign his office. The first difficulty of this kind had arisen in 1843, when Alcott, who was probably acting in conjunction with Thoreau, was arrested for his refusal to pay the tax. But it was not till 1845 that the state proceeded against the younger, and, as it was presumably thought, less important offender. Footnote. The date is wrongly given in Emerson's memoir as 1847. And footnote. One afternoon, when Thoreau chanced to have gone in from Walden to the village to get a shoe from the cobblers, he was intercepted and lodged in the town jail. Henry, why are you here? were the words of Emerson when he came to visit his friend in this new place of retirement. "'Why are you not here?' was the significant reply of the prisoner, in allusion to the characteristic caution of Emerson. A humorous account of the night he spent in prison, and of the fellow criminals he met there, was afterwards written by Thoreau. It was like travelling, he tells us, into a far country, such as I had never expected to behold, to lie there for one night. It seemed to me that I never heard the town clock strike before, nor the evening sounds of the village, for we slept with the windows open, which were inside the grating. It was a closer view of my native town. I was fairly inside of it, I never had seen its institutions before. I began to comprehend what its inhabitants were about. The next morning he was discharged, his mother and aunts having paid the tax without his consent, a somewhat tame conclusion of the dispute on which he had not reckoned. Footnote. The payment of the tax has been wrongly ascribed to Emerson, the money was actually handed to the jailer by Miss Maria Thoreau, disguised by wrapping something round her head. The jailer, who is still living, 1894, says that the payment made Thoreau mad as the devil. End footnote. He proceeded straight from the prison door, among the meaning glances of his fellow townsmen, to finish the errand in which he had been interrupted overnight, and having put on his mended shoe, was soon in command of a huckleberry party, on a hill two miles from Concord, from which spot, as he characteristically remarked, the state was nowhere to be seen. During all his walks over the fields and forests of the Walden neighborhood, in which he was absent for hours, and sometimes days together, he never fastened the door of his hut. Yet he never missed anything but a volume of Homer, and was never molested by any person but those who represented the state. 
his longest absence from walden seems to have been the fortnight he spent in maine in september eighteen forty six when in company with a cousin who was residing at bangor he explored the recesses of the maine woods ascended the mountain katahdin and made personal acquaintance with some of the native indian hunters whose habits he was never weary of studying in eighteen forty seven he had some correspondence and personal intercourse with agassiz who had come to the states in the previous autumn and paid more than one visit to concord on several occasions collections of fishes turtles and various local fauna were sent to agassiz by thoreau of whose knowledge and observation the great naturalist formed a high opinion in one way however thoreau differed widely from other members of the same profession for though a naturalist he had discarded the use of the gun and the trap before he lived in the woods his field glass being the sole weapon of attack which he now carried in his excursions fishing was the only sport which he did not abandon and even on this point his conscience was already uneasy and he had discovered that he could not fish without falling a little in self-respect thus two summers and two winters passed by fruitful in quiet meditation and ripening experience though offering few incidents which call for special remark when the summer of eighteen forty seven had arrived he began to feel that the object for which he retired to walden was now sufficiently accomplished and that it was time for him to return to the more social atmosphere of the village his period of retirement had not been wasted or misspent for he had learned by his experiment two great lessons concerning the practical life and the spiritual first that to maintain one's self on this earth is not a hardship but a pastime if we will live simply and wisely it being his own experience that he could meet all the expenses of the year by six weeks of work secondly that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours in proportion as he simplifies his life the laws of the universe will appear less complex and solitude will not be solitude nor poverty poverty nor weakness weakness he had put his transcendental philosophy to the test and the result had not disappointed him he was no longer the parcel of vain strivings which he had pictured himself in his youthful poem but he had now firm ground beneath his feet and a clear object towards which to direct his course in the future on the sixth of september eighteen forty seven he left walden and again took up his residence in his father's household at concord the hut in which he had spent so many pleasant hours became the habitation of a scotch gardener 
A few years later, it was bought by a farmer and removed to another quarter of the Concord Township, where it was used as a small granary and tool house till some time after the death of its architect and original inhabitant. I left the woods, he says, for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. Why did I leave the woods, he wrote in his journal a few years later? I do not think that I can tell. I do not know any better how I came to go there. I have often wished myself back. Perhaps I wanted change. There was a little stagnation, it may be, about two o'clock in the afternoon. Perhaps if I lived there much longer, I might live there forever. One might think twice before he accepted heaven on such terms. Walden, the most famous of Thoreau's volumes, which contains the account of his life in the woods, was not published till 1854. That this most characteristic episode of his life should be a cause of wonder and misunderstanding to the majority of his readers and fellow citizens was perhaps only to be expected. Mention is made in one of the later diaries of an acquaintance of Emerson's, who was much interested in Walden, but who was convinced that the book was nothing more than a satire, and jeu d'esprit, written solely for the amusement of the passing moment, a misconception of the whole spirit of Thoreau's life, which is scarcely more wide of the mark than are some of the judgments passed on the Walden experiment in more recent criticism. His shanty life, says Mr. Lowell, was a mere impossibility, so far as his own conception of it goes, as an entire independency of mankind. The tub of Diogenes had a sounder bottom. Footnote. The author of the article on Thoreau in the Encyclopedia Britannica falls into a similar error when he states that Thoreau was desirous of proving to himself and others that man could be as independent of mankind as the nest-building bird. So, too, Professor Nickel in his American literature. End footnote. But there is not a word to indicate that Thoreau was thinking of an entire independency of mankind, or of abjuring a single product of civilization which is of real use to men. The fact that this enterprise of Thoreau's, as described in his Walden, has been an encouragement and help to many persons, both in America and England, to live a simpler and saner life, is of itself sufficient testimony to the success of his endeavors. Yet Mr. Lowell's most unjustifiable confusion of simplicity with barbarism has again and again been quoted by later critics as an exposure of Thoreau's fallacies. Thoreau, says Dr. E. W. Emerson, 
is absurdly misconceived by most people. He did not wish that everyone should live in isolated cabins in the woods on Indian corn and beans and cranberries. His own Walden camping was but a short experimental episode, and even then this really very human and affectionate man constantly visited his friends in the village and was a most dutiful son and affectionate brother. It is idle for caviling Epicureans to announce as a great discovery that he sometimes took supper comfortably at a friend's house, or was too good a son to churlishly thumb back the cake that his good mother had specially made for him. He was not like the little men of that day who magnified trifles of diet until they could think of little else. It is necessary, if we would understand Thoreau aright, to appreciate carefully the importance of his sojourn at Walden in relation to the rest of his career. It seems to be sometimes forgotten that the period of his retirement was only two years out of the twenty of his adult life, and that it is therefore an injustice to him to connect his work too exclusively with Walden, or to speak of that episode as containing the sum and substance of his philosophical belief. There was a time of self-probation rather than an attempt to influence others, a trial rather than an expression of his transcendental ideas. He was under thirty years of age when he went to Walden, had published no volumes, and was altogether unknown except to a limited circle of his fellow townsmen. On the other hand, it must be noted that this was the time when his thoughts ripened, and his ethical creed assumed a definite form, and that his residence in the woods was not only the most striking, because the most picturesque incident in his life, but also gave a determining direction to his later career. He was a student when he came to Walden. When he returned to Concord, he was a teacher. And now, at this critical point in Thoreau's story, it may be well to interrupt for a time the external narrative of his life, in order to show what manner of man he was, in appearance, character, sympathies, studies, and other personal traits, when he thus came forward to preach to an inattentive world his gospel of simplicity. End of chapter 4Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Part 1 The personality of Thoreau was one which seldom failed to arrest the attention of those who met him. He was short of stature, says Mr. Monacure Conway, who visited him a few years after he left Walden, well built, and such a man as I have fancied Julius Caesar to have been. 
Every movement was full of courage and repose. The tones of his voice were those of truth herself, and there was in his eye the pure bright blue of the New England sky, as there was sunshine in his flaxen hair. He had a particularly strong aquiline Roman nose, which somehow reminded me of the prow of a ship. This description is fully corroborated by that given in Thoreau, the poet-naturalist, by Ellery Channing, who, from his long and intimate acquaintance with Thoreau, could speak with peculiar authority. His face, once seen, could not be forgotten. The features were quite marked. The nose, aquiline or very Roman, like one of the portraits of Caesar, more like a beak, as was said. Large, overhanging brows above the deepest set blue eyes that could be seen, in certain lights, and in others gray. Eyes expressive of all shades of feeling, but never weak or nearsighted. The forehead not unusually broad or high, full of concentrated energy or purpose, the mouth with prominent lips, pursed up with meaning and thought when silent, and giving out when open a stream of the most varied and unusual and instructive sayings. His whole figure had an active earnestness, as if he had no moment to waste. Even in the boat he had a wary, transitory air, his eyes on the outlook. Perhaps there might be ducks, or the blondin turtle, or an otter or sparrow. From 1840 to 1860, Thoreau's figure must have been a very familiar one to his fellow townsmen of Concord, since he was abroad in all weathers and at all hours, a noticeable man with his sloping shoulders, his eyes bent on the ground, his long swinging gait, his hands perhaps clasped behind him or held closely at his side, the fingers made into a fist. The indomitable spirit that animated his whole character was written unmistakably in his personal appearance. How deep and clear is the mark that thought sets upon a man's face was the exclamation of one who saw him for the first time. Footnote. There are three portraits of Thoreau which have been reproduced in various forms. One, a crayon done by S. W. Rouse, a young artist who stayed with the Thoreaus, in 1854, before the time when Thoreau wore a beard. Two, a photograph by Critcherson, taken at Worcester, Massachusetts, in 1857 or 1858, not in 1861, as has been wrongly stated. Thoreau here appears with a fringe of beard on his throat. 3. An ambrotype photograph taken by Dunshee at New Bedford at the request of Mr. Daniel Ricketson in August 1861, when Thoreau was wearing a full beard and mustache. 
from this photograph a bas-relief medallion head in profile life-size was produced by mr walton ricketson the son of thoreau's friend End footnote. the homeliness of thoreau's mode of dress has already been noticed and this during his more lengthy walks or excursions often led to strange errors as to his object and vocation in cape cod and elsewhere he was several times mistaken for a peddler and on board a steamboat on the hudson river he was once asked for a chaw a backy by a bystander who took him for a shipmate it is said that his speech always had a burr in it owing to his peculiar pronunciation of the letter r but all his oddities of appearance and manner were soon forgotten under the singular charm of his conversation the power of which is attested by all who knew him he himself says in a passage of his diary that his bon mots were the ripe dry fruit of long past experience which fell from him easily without giving him either pain or pleasure this experience was not gathered as is usually the case by foreign travel or a varied manner of life but by shrewd native sense and keen practical insight there was a wonderful fitness emerson tells us between his body and mind he was expert as a walker swimmer runner rower and in all outdoor employments he could measure any given distance or height by foot or eye with extraordinary precision could estimate the exact weight of anything put into his hands and from a box containing a bushel or more of loose pencils could take up just a dozen pencils at every grasp in 1847, in answer to a circular which was issued at the time for the purpose of collecting facts in the lives of the Harvard class of 1837, Thoreau wrote the following highly characteristic letter. Am not married. I don't know whether mine is a profession or a trade or what not. It is not yet learned and in every instance has been practiced before being studied the mercantile part of it was begun by myself alone it is not one but legion i will give you some of the monsters heads i am a schoolmaster a private tutor a surveyor a gardener a farmer a painter i mean a house painter a carpenter, a mason, a day-laborer, a pencil-maker, a glass-paper-maker, a writer, and sometimes a poetister. If you will act the part of Iolus, and apply a hot iron to any of these heads, I shall be greatly obliged to you. My present employment is to answer such orders as may be expected from so general an advertisement as the above. That is, if I see fit, which is not always the case, 
for I have found out a way to live without what is commonly called employment or industry, attractive or otherwise. Indeed, my steadiest employment, if such it can be called, is to keep myself at the top of my condition and ready for whatever may turn up in heaven or on earth. The last two or three years I lived in Concord Woods, alone, something more than a mile from any neighbor in a house built entirely by myself. P.S. I beg that the class will not consider me an object of charity, and if any of them are in want of any pecuniary assistance and will make known their case to me, I will engage to give them some advice of more worth than money. Footnote From Memorials of the Class of 1837 Prepared for the 50th Anniversary of the Graduation by Henry Williams, Boston, 1887 End footnote He has sometimes been called an ascetic, but if he seldom used flesh or wine, tea or coffee, and other supposed necessaries of diet, this abstinence was assuredly due to the fact that he found he thus increased, rather than diminished, the pleasure of existence. The rare delicacy of his nature showed itself in his abhorrence of every form of sensuality or grossness, and in his expressed desire to live as tenderly and daintily as one would pluck a flower. Yet seldom has there been a greater lover of healthy physical life. The keenness of his senses was extraordinary, and the perceptions of color, sound, smell, and taste are always spoken of in his diaries as luxuries for which he can never be sufficiently grateful. Music had at all times a peculiar attraction for him. He was himself a skillful player on the flute, and is repeatedly mentioned in the diaries and letters as one of the supreme delights of life. But if we wish to discover the central and distinctive quality of Thoreau's character, we must look beyond the above-mentioned faculties to the inner secret of his power, the ideality that dominated all his thoughts and actions. He was a transcendentalist in a far deeper and more literal sense than the majority of those who bore that name. It was this ideality that gave to his character a certain external coldness and remoteness. I love Henry, said one of his friends, but I cannot like him. And as for taking his arm, I should as soon think of taking the arm of an elm tree. The misunderstandings thus generated were keenly felt by Thoreau himself, who rightly attributes them to his own extreme sensibility and exacting disposition. There are a number of passages in the diaries, perhaps not to be taken very literally, in which his oversensitive nature seems to be tormented by unnecessary doubts as to his relations with his friends, 
and this rigid strictness of ideal is especially observable in his essays on love and friendship the latter of which forms a portion of one of the best-known chapters in the week thus it was that the very value which thoreau set on his friendships was his chief difficulty in maintaining them their rarity being to him the measure of their worth so that with a few exceptions he turned to nature for what he could not find in man. It is only fair to add that Ellery Channing, who, as Thoreau's most intimate friend, should be an authority on this point, asserts positively that the essay on friendship was poetical and romantic, and that to read it literally would be to accuse its author of stupidity the living actual friendship and affection says channing which makes time a reality no one knew better he meant friendship and meant nothing else and stood by it without the slightest abatement to a man of this temperament who needed leisure breathing space and elbow-room and could not endure to be shut up in polite drawing-rooms and dining-rooms, where the guests jostled each other mentally and bodily, and where all true individuality was hidden and wasted, the frivolities and formalities of conventional society could not be otherwise than a burden and an irritant under such conditions he became contradictory and pugnacious and marred the course of conversation by the promptitude with which he negatived every proposition that might be advanced most of all when he detected any signs of hypocrisy foppishness or dilettantism the sharp sayings and still more accusing silences as emerson terms them which thoreau dealt out to all pretentious personages had of course the effect of getting him the reputation of cynicism and misanthropy those readers however who rightly appreciate his character will distinguish between the normal churlishness which certainly was not one of his failings, and the occasional acridity of speech which he deliberately adopted in his intercourse with his fellow citizens. If he had any affection in his sincere and aspiring nature, wrote one who knew him well, Mr. Edward Hoare of Concord, it was a sort of inherited petulance, that covered a sensitive and affectionate nature, easily wounded by the scornful criticism which his new departure sometimes brought upon him. To style Thoreau a misanthrope is to misunderstand his whole nature, and to do him a great injustice. He loved to study all forms of innocent and healthy character, and in one of his works he quotes, as specially applicable to himself, Terence's famous maxim of regard for our common humanity. Had he been the mere fastidious recluse that some critics have supposed him, 
he could not have drawn his sympathetic and humorous sketches of the sturdy conquered farmers or of the hardy unsophisticated woodchopper by whom he was visited at walden or of the aged brown-coated fisherman who haunted the banks of the musketaquid or of the drunken dutchman on board a new york steamboat or of the merry old oysterman who gave him hospitality at cape cod for idealist and enthusiast though he was he possessed a true vein of humor which is none the less piquant because it is expressed in a manner so dry pithy and laconic it is pleasant too to note that the gravity which the habitual with the hermit and philosopher could melt when occasion arose into merriment and good fellowship and that when he laughed the operation was sufficient to split a pitcher he was fond of playing on his flute and would at times sing tom bowling and other nautical songs with much gusto and animation and it is even recorded that he once or twice startled his friends by performing an improvised dance reference has already been made to his sympathy with children and his remarkable power of interesting and amusing them he would tell them stories sing to them and play on his flute or perform various pieces of jugglery for their entertainment an accomplishment which he had probably learnt from his eccentric uncle charles dunbar in whose oddities he always took much interest but it was in the huckleberry expeditions that his services were in greatest request for then he would drive the hay-cart in which the children journeyed to the hills where the berries abounded and who knew each knoll and dingle so intimately as thoreau leading the frolic with his jokes and laughter as they jolted along when we read the delightful accounts of his kindness and helpfulness on these occasions we know how to estimate the charges of misanthropy and churlishness though shy of general society says the writer of the reminiscences in Fraser, the row was a hero among children and the captain of their excursions. He was the sine qua non of the Concord Huckleberry Party, which is in that region something of an institution. To have Thoreau along with them was to be sure of finding acres of bushes laden with the delicious fruit, a child stumbles and falls, losing his carefully gathered store of berries. Thoreau kneels beside the weeping unfortunate and explains to him in the group that nature has made these little provisions for next year's crop. If there were no obstacles and little boys did not fall occasionally, how would berries be scattered and planted? and what would become of huckleberryings he will then arrange that he who has thus suffered for the general good shall have the first chance at the next pasture 
the severity of thoreau's ideal was not less conspicuous in matters of business than in his relations towards his friends he was absolutely and austerely faithful to his inner sense of right keeping his engagements with stern regularity and never failing in the full discharge of his duty to those who engaged him as surveyor or handicraftsman himself thus inflexible in his probity he expected and exacted a corresponding uprightness in others and where this was not exhibited he made no polite pretense of concealing his dissatisfaction no meanness hypocrisy or dishonesty whether on the part of rich or poor could escape the rigorous censure of that terrible thoreau as his acquaintances called him nor would he waste on thriftless applicants one cent of the money which he had earned by his own conscientious labors he maintained sincerity to be the chief of all virtues a yankee stoic is a term that has been applied to thoreau though cosmopolitan in his philosophical views he was american to the backbone in sentiment and manner and did not study to conceal his indifference or aversion for english and european fashions he possessed in large measure the american qualities of self-consciousness and self-assertion and avows in walden his intention to brag as lustily as chanticleer in the morning in order to wake up his neighbors and as america was the most favored of countries so did he extol his native concord as the most favored of towns this preference however was not due as some have supposed to mere parochialism and narrowness of mind for parochialism the study of the little instead of the great was certainly not one of thoreau's failings but was as emerson has pointed out a half serious half humorous way of reasserting the old stoical maxim that all places are the same to a wise man and that the best place for each is where he stands on the same principle being asked at table what dish he preferred he is said to have answered the nearest End of chapter five part one chapter five part two of life of henry david thoreau by henry salt this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter five part two not even the suspicion of provincial prejudice can attach to thoreau's literary tastes it is true that his earnest practical mind could not relish the subtleties of metaphysical works the dullness of moral treatises or the floweriness of romance and he was usually averse to reading the magazines and journals of the day 
the news in which he was interested being other than that which newspapers report. But he read largely and widely, nevertheless, and his discrimination never deteriorated into fastidiousness and partiality. The class of books which he most highly valued was undoubtedly the sacred scriptures, as he calls them, of the poets and philosophers of Persia and India, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu Sarma, Laws of Menu, Sadi, and other Bibles of the old Oriental religions. These he studied chiefly in French and German translations, which he accumulated with such zeal that he is said to have had the best library of such books in the country, and this was supplemented in 1855 by a handsome present of volumes in English, French, Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, sent him by Mr. Colmondelli, a young English friend. There are numerous citations from these ancient writings in Thoreau's own works, and so great was his reverence for them that he jealously asserted their claim to the title of scriptures in common with those of Jewish origin. When a young visitor from Harvard College informed him that he was studying the scriptures, Thoreau quickly retorted, but which? Thoreau's classical studies were not confined to his early years, but were fully maintained in afterlife. Homer, Aeschylus, Virgil, and the poets of the Greek anthology being his chief favorites. Classical learning is eulogized in both the weak and Walden as being the most heroic and tranquilizing of all branches of reading. The value of the classic languages, says Wentworth Higginson, was never better exemplified than in their influence on his training. They were real humanities to him, linking him with the great memories of the race and with high intellectual standards, so that he could never, like some of his imitators, treat literary art as a thing unmanly and trivial. I remember how that fine old classical scholar, the late John Glenn King of Salem, used to delight in Thoreau as being the only man who thoroughly loved both nature and Greek. His reading in Greek and Latin included not only the classics proper, but many old-fashioned authorities on agriculture and natural history such as Aristotle, Elian, Theophrastus, Cato, Varro, and Pliny. His respect for Linnaeus was, according to Channing, transcendent. He loved to study Frossard and the old-fashioned chronicles, and such voyages as those of Drake and Purchase, with any books of travel that came in his way. Among poets, the old English writers were most to his liking. He read and appreciated old ballad writers, Chaucer, Spencer, Ossian, Herbert, 
Cowley, Quarles, and above all others Milton, whose Lycidas was often on his lips. For the moderns he cared comparatively little, the chief exceptions being Goethe, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Ruskin, and Carlyle. He admired Ruskin, but thought him somewhat bigoted, finding in him, as he expressed it, too much about art for me and the Hottentots. For Carlyle he felt and expressed the sincerest admiration, as may be seen in the essay which he contributed to Graham's magazine in 1847. There was another and wholly different branch of reading to which Thoreau devoted a considerable portion of his time. The records of the native Indian tribes, which he extracted with much labor and research from the histories of the Jesuit missionaries, the early New England chroniclers, and various other sources of information. Everything connected with the Indians had a strange interest and fascination for him. He noted and admired their natural instinct of woodcraft, their immobility and self-possession, and their mysterious sense of remoteness from the white man. He several times visited Maine in order to study their language and habits, and never failed to converse with the wandering parties who sometimes pitched their tents for a few weeks on the banks of the Concord River. His collection of Indian relics had been commenced while he was still a youth, for the soil of Concord, an old settlement of Indian tribes, was rich in these treasures, arrowheads, pottery, and stone implements being often turned up by the plough. Regularly every spring, when the fields had been washed bare by rains and thawing snow, would Thoreau set out to gather his crop of arrowheads, and his extraordinary keenness of sight in detecting these relics was often a cause of wonder to less observant minds. I do not see where you find your Indian arrowheads, once remarked the companion of his walk. Here is one, replied Thoreau on the instant, picking one up and presenting it to his astonished friend. This remarkable sympathy, on the part of one of the most advanced of modern thinkers, with the spirit of a savage and decaying race is accounted for by Thoreau's strong natural inclination to the uncultivated and wild. He loved the sea and all desert places, preferred the wild apple to the cultured orchard, and the dreariest swamp to the most fragrant garden and it cheered him to see the young forest pines springing up anew in the fertile cornland. The Indian, the human representative of wild life in New England, thus attracted his sympathies, just as the sympathies of George Barrow were attracted to the roaming gypsy tribes. This inclination of Thoreau to wild nature was not, as some critics have suggested, a symptom of an unhealthy temperament, 
but rather a method of retaining the excellent soundness of his mind. His whole life, says Lowell, was a search for the doctor. This was not the case. He went to nature, not as a sickly valetudinarian seeking a cure for his ailments, but as a sane and healthy man, the secret of whose health lay in this very familiarity with the open air. Walking was a necessity of Thoreau's existence. He demanded four hours at least each day for sauntering at leisure over hills and woods and fields, taking shortcuts when he could, and avoiding for the most part the grit and noise of the busier high-roads. The old Marlborough Road, which led southwest from Concord, through a spacious tract of open country abounding in patches of scrub oak and wild apples, was one of his favorite haunts. So, too, were Walden Woods and the cliffs which overhang Fairhaven, the wide bay formed by a bend of the river two miles south of the village. The river was much frequented by him at all seasons of the year, for in summer he made almost daily voyages in his boat, which he kept moored in Ellery Channing's riverside garden, and in winter the frozen stream offered a convenient pathway. On these expeditions, Thoreau was generally unaccompanied, unless Ellery Channing or one of his few chosen friends happened to be with him. Offers of companionship were not rarely forthcoming, but these he for the most part declined with that frankness which was all his own. Would he not walk with them, some acquaintances would ask? He did not know. There was nothing so important to him as his walk. He had no walks to throw away on company. But for those who succeeded in gaining this privilege, a rare treat was assured. Here is a reminiscence of Thoreau from a private letter of G. W. Curtis. It always seems to me one of the good fortunes of my life that I knew Concord when Emerson, Hawthorne, and Thoreau were citizens there, and that I personally knew them. If in personal intercourse Thoreau sometimes seemed to be, as Hawthorne said, a cast-iron man, he was, after all, no more rigid than the oak which holds fast by its own roots whatever betides. One of my most vivid recollections of my life in Concord is that of an evening upon the shallow river with Thoreau in his boat. We lighted a huge fire of fat pine in an iron crate beyond the bow of the boat and drifted slowly through an illuminated circle of the ever-changing aspect of the riverbed. In that house beautiful you can fancy what an interpreter he was. His powers of conversation, says another, who was thus favored, were extraordinary. I remember being surprised and delighted at every step with revelations of laws and significant attributes in common things. The acuteness of his senses was marvelous, 
no hound could scent better, and he could hear the most faint and distant sound without even laying his ear to the ground like an Indian. As we penetrated farther and farther into the woods, he seemed to gain a certain transformation, and his face shone with a light that I had not seen in the village. The account of Thoreau's skillful and genial leadership of the Concord Huckleberry parties has already been quoted, and from the same authority we have an equally charming description of how he would guide his friends to the haunts of the water lily. Footnote. Moncure Conway, Fraser, April, 1866. End footnote. Upon such occasions, his resources for our entertainment were inexhaustible. He would tell stories of the Indians who once dwelt thereabouts, till the children almost looked to see a red man skulking with his arrow on shore, and every plant or flower on the bank or in the water, and every fish, turtle, frog, lizard about us, was transformed by the wand of his knowledge from the low form into which the spell of our ignorance had reduced it into a mystic beauty. One of his surprises was to thrust his hands softly into the water and to softly raise up before our astonished eyes a large bright fish, which lay as contentedly in his hand as if they were old acquaintances. This fish was probably the bream, whose nest-guarding habits are described by Thoreau in The Week. The breams are so careful of their charge that you may stand close by in the water and examine them at your leisure. I have stood over them half an hour at a time, and stroked them familiarly without frightening them and have even taken them gently out of the water with my hand. His extraordinary sympathy with animals was one of the most singular and pleasing features in Thoreau's character. Like St. Francis, he felt a sense of love and brotherhood towards the lower races, and regarded them not as brute beasts without sensibility or soul, but as possessing the character and importance of another order of men. He protested against the conceited self-assurance with which man sets down the intelligence of animals as mere instinct, while overlooking their real wisdom and fitness of behavior. They were his townsmen and fellow-creatures, whose individuality must be recognized as much as his own and who must be treated with courtesy and gentleness. The strange influence which Thoreau was able to exercise over beasts and birds and fishes was doubtless chiefly due to the power of his humane sympathy, partly, also, to his habits of patient silence and watchfulness, in which he resembled the hermits of the Middle Ages. His hut at Walden was inhabited by other creatures besides himself. The birds would flit fearlessly through the room, the red squirrel raced over the roof, 
while moles and hares stabled in the cellar, and chickadees perched on the armfuls of wood which he carried across his threshold. Once, as he was hoeing in a garden, a sparrow alighted on his shoulder, which he regarded as a greater honor than any epaulette he could have worn. Nor was this all, for his mingled firmness and sympathy enabled him to take all sorts of liberties with the wildest of wild creatures. A story is told how a squirrel, which he had taken home for a few days in order to observe its habits, refused to be set at liberty, returning again and again to its new friend with embarrassing persistence, climbing up his knee, sitting on his hand, and at last gaining the day by hiding its head in the folds of his waistcoat, an appeal which Thoreau was not able to withstand. Thoreau was essentially a poet-naturalist, as Ellery Channing entitled him, and not a man of science. He was, indeed, an honorary member and correspondent of the Boston Natural History Society, but he declined, as a rule, to write memoirs of his experiences in this branch of study, on the ground that he could not properly detach the mere external record of observation from the inner associations with which such facts were connected in his mind. In a word, the natural history of the subject could not be separated from the poetry. His whole method, as we have seen, was different from that of the scientific anatomist. He observed, but he did not kill, making it his object to hold his bird in the affections rather than in the hand. It is said that when some Concord loafers mockingly asked Thoreau if he really did not shoot a bird when he wanted to study it, he replied, Do you think I should shoot you if I wanted to study you? His diaries testify to the immense diligence and keenness of his communion with nature and his unflagging interest in the seasons and all they bring with them. He noted and recorded the habits of animals, the tracks of the fox and otter, the migrations and songs of birds, the croak of frogs and chirp of crickets, the spawning in nests of fishes, the blossoming of flowers, the fall of leaves, the height of the river, the temperature of ponds and springs, and innumerable other phenomena of outdoor life. Like all true naturalists, he loved birds, and many are the entries in his journal respecting the kinds that are native at Concord, the bobolink, the robin, the song sparrow, the whippoorwill, the catbird, and the bluebird, which, as he beautifully said of it, carries the sky on its back. He loved to be awakened in the early summer mornings by the song of birds, and nothing cheered him so much in the midst of a winter storm as a bird's chirp or whistle. The neighborhood of Concord, with its wide tracts of meadow and woodland, was a fine field for the naturalist, 
and thoreau in his characteristic love of paradox was fond of asserting that it surpassed all other places as a centre of observation a foible for which he was gently bantered by emerson he talked about nature it was wittily remarked as if she had been born and brought up in concord ne quid que severis extrate concordimique was his humorous maxim he contended that all the important plants of america were included in the flora of massachusetts and after reading kane's arctic voyage he expressed his conviction that most of the arctic phenomena might be noted at concord an assertion which he partly substantiated by the discovery of red snow and one or two labrador plants he had thoughts of constructing a complete calendar for the natural phenomena of concord and believed that if he waked up from a trance the time of year would be as plain to him from the plants as the time of day from a dial of all flowers the water-lily was his favorite but there were none that he did not know and love even the growth of the sturdy aboriginal weeds gave him a sense of satisfaction he often walked miles to note the condition of some rare tree or shrub and congratulated himself that the time thus spent was more profitably laid out than in a good many social visits on one occasion says a friend who visited him at concord he mentioned the hibiscus beside the river a rare flower in new england and when i desired to see it told me it would open about monday and did not stay long i went on tuesday afternoon and was a day too late the petals lay on the ground such were the points in thoreau's personality which made him an object of interest and wonder from the first to his own friends and acquaintances and afterwards to a far wider circle we can well believe that a man gifted with such an intense and genuine individuality often found himself as emerson tells us in dramatic situations and that in any debatable matter there was no person whose judgment was awaited by his townsmen with keener expectation as his fame spread he gained an increasing number of admiring friends some of whom travelled long distances to see and converse with him in the belief that this was the man they were in search of the man of men who could tell them all they should do End of chapter five chapter six part one of life of henry david thoreau by henry salt this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter six part one in the autumn of eighteen forty seven shortly after leaving the hut at walden thoreau again took up his residence at emerson's house and lived there a year during his friend's absence in europe 
in order to keep Mrs. Emerson company and take charge of the garden. He was in the habit of assisting Mr. Alcott in garden work on his estate at Hillside, and in 1847 the two friends and fellow workers had built Emerson a summer house to be used as a study. Early in October, Thoreau accompanied Emerson to Boston to see him start on his voyage, and in a letter to his sister Sophia, he feelingly described the appearance and dimensions of the philosopher's cabin, and how, instead of a walk in Walden Woods, he would be compelled to promenade on deck, where the few trees you know are stripped of their bark. Emerson, on his part, was not forgetful of Thoreau during his visit to England, and we find him planning, in 1848, a new joint American and English magazine, to which Thoreau was to be one of the chief contributors. After Emerson's return to Concord in 1849, Thoreau lived at his father's house in the village, and this continued to be his home for the rest of his life. He had now begun to consider literature his regular occupation and it was as a writer and lecturer that he was henceforth chiefly known. We have seen that during his literary novitiate he had contributed articles, unpaid for the most part, to the Dial and other journals, and in 1847, by the kind services of Horace Greeley, his essay on Carlyle was printed in Graham's magazine. This was followed in 1849 by the essay on civil disobedience, an expression of his anarchist views which found place in the Boston aesthetic papers. In the spring of the same year, he took a more daring and important step by the publication of his first volume, The Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, which was issued at the author's expense, by Monroe, a Boston bookseller. The book was well-reviewed, but did not sell, and the result was that Thoreau was compelled to raise money to pay off the debt by devoting his time for an unusually long period to the more remunerative but less congenial task of surveying. An edition of 1,000 copies had been printed, and for several years the bulk of these lay idle on the publisher's shelves, until, in 1853, the remaining 700 volumes were returned en masse to the author. This event was recorded by Thoreau in his characteristic vein of dry humor, and with a manly courage and self-reliance not to be surpassed in the history of literary authorship. The wares are sent to me at last, and I have an opportunity to examine my purchase. They are something more substantial than fame, as my back knows, which has borne them up two flights of stairs, to a place similar to that to which they trace their origin. Of the remaining two hundred ninety and odd, seventy-five were given away, the rest sold. I have now a library of nearly nine hundred volumes, 
over seven hundred of which I wrote myself. Is it not well that the author should behold the fruits of his labor? My works are piled up in my chamber, half as high as my head, my opera omnia. This is authorship. These are the work of my brain. There was just one piece of good luck in the venture. The unbound were tied up by the printer four years ago in stout paper wrappers and inscribed H. D. Thoreau's Concord River, 50 copies. So Monroe had only to cross out river and write mass and deliver them to the expressman at once. I can see now what I write for and the result of my labors. Nevertheless, in spite of this result, sitting beside the inert mass of my works, I take up my pen tonight to record what thought or experience I may have had with as much satisfaction as ever. Indeed, I believe that this result is more inspiring and better than if a thousand had bought my wares. It affects my privacy less and leaves me freer. That the weak should at first have failed to win the favor of any but a few sympathetic readers can hardly be a matter of surprise, since its intense idealism and strongly pantheistic tone were ill-calculated to conciliate the ordinary American mind. Purporting to be a record of the trip made by the two brothers in 1839, it was in reality an outpouring of its author's ideal philosophy on a great variety of topics, a number of essays and poems, mostly reprints from the dial, being interwoven in the most arbitrary manner with the thread of the nominal subject. The book is thus rendered vague, disjointed, and discursive, and is, moreover, almost arrogant in its transcendental egoism. Yet, with all its deficiencies, it has, and must ever have, a great and indefinable charm for the lovers of Thoreau's genius. Its very lack of cohesion and entire disregard of method contribute to enhance the effect of its poetical mysticism and brilliant descriptive power, while several of the discourses introduced into it, notably those on friendship and religion, are written in Thoreau's most admirable and telling style. Footnote. The Athenaeum of 27th of October, 1849, contained a brief notice of the week. The matter is, for the most part, poor enough, said the reviewer, but there are a few things in the volume, scattered here and there, which suggest that the writer is a man with a habit of original thinking. End footnote. In the autumn of 1849, Thoreau accompanied a friend on an excursion to the wild, sandy tract of Cape Cod, for which he conceived so great a liking that he visited again on several occasions. In like manner, he spent a week in Canada, 
with Ellery Channing as his fellow traveler in September 1850. Each of these excursions provided material for a series of articles in Putnam's Magazine, but both came to an abrupt conclusion owing to misunderstandings between author and publisher, a mishap to which the Rose outspoken tone and uncompromising temper made him peculiarly liable. His visit to the Maine woods in 1846 was described in the Union magazine two years later, and he again went to Maine in 1853 and 1857. Footnote. For an account of these excursions, see Chapter 7. And footnote. These occasional excursions were a great pleasure to Thoreau, as extending the circle of his observations, without putting any restriction on his freedom. But he still resolutely declined to extend his travels to more distant regions, in spite of the offers he sometimes received from admirers and friends, who wished to take him round the world at their own cost. Believing that the far-fetched is of least value, he asserted that the sight of a marsh-hawk in the Concord Meadows was of more interest to him than the entry of the Allies into Paris. It is easy to laugh at this deliberate concentration of thought on a particular locality, but a study of Thoreau's life inclines one to believe that he gauged correctly the peculiar strength and the peculiar weakness of his shy and sensitive genius. The course of his life at Concord was singularly quiet and uneventful. Always an affectionate son and brother, he lived contentedly as a member of the household of his father, who, with his assistance, had now built himself a dwelling of his own, and was no longer a tenant. The rose study was in the garret, where he stored his collections of birds' eggs, botanical specimens, and Indian relics, and carried on his literary work. His regard for his father was in no wise diminished by the dissimilarity of their characters a contrast which is illustrated by some suggestive passages in the journal. On one occasion we find a protest made by the quiet, unobtrusive, but eminently practical old man against what he considered a waste of time on the part of his more imaginative son, who was busying himself in making sugar from a neighboring maple grove when he could have bought it cheaper at the village shop. To his father's remark that it took him from his studies, Thoreau made the characteristic answer that it was his study, and that after being engaged in this pursuit he felt as if he had been to a university. Mrs. Thoreau, who was of the same age as her husband, retained all her dramatic vivacity of manner, love of society, and extraordinary power of talk. It is said that when his mother began to talk at table, Thoreau would patiently remain silent until she had finished, and then, with a courteous obeisance, 
resumed the thread of his conversation at the point where it had been interrupted. In 1849, the family circle suffered a heavy loss in the death of Helen, Thoreau's elder sister, whose character, like that of the brother who died seven years earlier, was full of ability and promise. It was about this time that Thoreau became acquainted with Mr. Harrison G. O. Blake, a clergyman and tutor residing at Worcester, Massachusetts, with whom he corresponded largely from 1848 onwards, chiefly on subjects connected with his ideal method of thought. Mr. Blake has kindly furnished me with the following reminiscences of his friendly intercourse with Thoreau. I was introduced to him first by Mr. Emerson, more than forty years ago, though I had known him by sight before at college. I recall nothing of that first interview, unless it be some remarks upon astronomy, and his want of interest in the study as compared with studies relating more directly to this world, remarks such as he has made here and there in his writings. My first real introduction was from the reading of an article of his in the Dial on Aulus Perseus Flaccus, which appears now in the week. That led to my first writing to him and to his reply which is published in the volume of letters. Our correspondence continued for more than twelve years, and we visited each other at times, he coming here to Worcester, commonly to read something in public, or being on his way to read somewhere else. As to the outward incidents of our intercourse, I think of little or nothing that it seems worth while to write. Our conversation or rather his talking, when we were together, was in the strain of his letters and of his books. Our relation, as I look back on it, seems almost an impersonal one, and illustrates well his remark that our thoughts are the epochs in our lives. All else is but as a journal of the winds that blew while we were here. His personal appearance did not interest me particularly, except as the associate of his spirit, though I felt no discord between them. When together, we had little inclination to talk of personal matters. His aim was directed so steadily and earnestly towards what is essential in our experience that beyond all others of whom I have known, he made but a single impression on me. Geniality, versatility, personal familiarity are, of course, agreeable in those about us, and seem necessary in human intercourse, but I did not miss them in Thoreau, who was, while living, and is still in my recollection in what he has left to us, such an effectual witness to what is highest and most precious in life. As I re-read his letters from time to time, which I never tire of doing, I am apt to find new significance in them, am still warned and instructed by them, with more force occasionally than ever before. So that, in a sense, 
they are still in the mail, have not altogether reached me yet, and will not probably before I die. They may well be regarded as addressed to those who can read them best. In addition to his pedestrian excursions, Thoreau paid occasional visits to Cambridge and Boston, the attraction at the former place being the university library, from which, owing to the insistence with which he petitioned the librarian and president, he was permitted unusual privileges in the taking out of books. At Boston, he was fond of studying the books of the Natural History Society and walking on the long wharf. The rest was barrels. Salem, too, he sometimes visited as a guest of Hawthorne, who had left Concord in 1846, and he lectured once or twice at the Salem Lyceum, of which Hawthorne was the secretary. One other journey he had about this time of a more mournful character. In July 1850, when Margaret Fuller, who had become the wife of the Marquis of Ossoli, was shipwrecked on her return from Italy and drowned off the coast of Fire Island, near New York, the Roe and her other friends hurried to the scene of the disaster to assist in the vain attempt to recover her body. Though Thoreau had now attained a certain recognized position as a writer, he was still compelled to earn the greater part of his means of subsistence by pencil-making or land-surveying. This last employment, or rather the company into which his employment brought him, was very far from being a congenial one. On such occasions he was no longer the poet, naturalist, and idealist, but merely Thoreau the surveyor, as he informs his friend Blake. Lecturing was probably a more agreeable occupation, though here too he speaks of himself as simply their hired man, while his candor occasionally placed him in strained relations towards his audience though he several times made his mark on the platform, the more usual result was to puzzle and bewilder those who heard him. He was a poor lecturer, says Joseph Hosmer. He had no magnetism, and only gave simple dry details, as though he was before a jury to give his evidence under oath. Hence, he never succeeded as a platform or lyceum speaker, which I think he desired to be. In the autumn of 1852, Thoreau met Arthur Hugh Clough, who had come over to Boston with Thackeray and thence paid Emerson a visit at Concord. Walk with Emerson to a wood with a prettyish pool, writes Clough in his diary for the 14th of November the pool being presumably Walden. Concord is very bare. It is a small sort of village, almost entirely of wood houses painted white, with Venetian blinds, green outside, with two white wooden churches. There are some American elms and sycamores, i.e. plains, but the wood is mostly pine, white pine and yellow pine. 
somewhat scrubby, occupying the tops of the low banks and marshy hayland between. A little brook runs through to the Concord River. At 6.30, T and Mr. Thoreau, and presently Mr. Ellery Channing, Miss Channing, and others. It was in this same year that Nathaniel Hawthorne returned to Concord and took up his residence at Hillside, now renamed Wayside, an estate which had been for some years in Alcott's possession, and on which Thoreau and Alcott had done a great deal of manual work in constructing terraces and summer houses. End of chapter 6, part 1「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.